One of my favorite movies, in fact, my favorite movie of all times is the, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Spoiler alert, it's only been out 70 years, but I'm going to tell you what goes on. Um, and It's a Wonderful Life, you know, it's the story of, of George Bailey, a rather ordinary man who does nothing all that spectacular in his life, but then things sort of fall apart and he just says, I, I wish I'd never been born. And so the bumbling angel Clarence, uh, bad theology, but you know, we'll get over that. Uh, the bumbling angel Clarence shows him what it would be like in his little town of Bedford Falls if he had never been born. And so you know the story. Bedford Falls, instead of being a, a quaint little town, is a, is a dump. It's full of poverty, corruption. Uh, evil things are going on. Uh, not only that, but Harry's, uh, George's brother Harry dies as a child because George isn't there to save him. And because Harry dies as a child, he's not there to be a war hero and a bunch of soldiers die because he's not there. His uncle goes to an insane asylum. His boss goes to prison for murder. And worst of all, the low point comes when he asks where his wife is. Where's Mary? And Clarence has to give him the bad news. She never married. She's a librarian. <laughs> Talk about a fate worse than death, right? I mean, and so it, it is a true horror film at this point. But, but I often wondered what would happen if they made It's a Wonderful Life about Village 7? How would Colorado Springs be any different or to think of it another way, if all of a sudden this church were just snatched up, would the community miss us? Would they even know that we are gone? We don't just live in Colorado Springs. God has called us here for a purpose. And we see this here in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, as we see the Israelites, the Jews, were called to be in Babylon of all places for a purpose. And so we're going to look at Jeremiah 29. Uh, with this sense that God has a higher calling for his people than simply to live in a place. It's not just a place where you, you come and you take up the resources and enjoy and then leave at some point. We are here for a purpose. Now, to understand that, to, to begin here, understand our calling, we must first begin by understanding where we are, because I'm not sure we always know where we are. Now, if I were to ask you where you are, you'd say, I'm in Colorado Springs, but do you really understand what that means? Do you understand the world that you're living in today? Because for the Jews, this was a very disorienting time. So let's begin with where we are. Now in 597 BC, Babylon, the only superpower of the world at this time to speak of, Egypt was a power, but not like Babylon. Babylon invades Jerusalem and, and essentially conquers the city, uh, kills thousands of people, and takes the best and the brightest into exile back in Babylon. And you're familiar with this because that's the story where Daniel takes place uh, as an exile back in Babylon. Well, Babylon ransacks the city, ruins the economy, humiliates the leaders, and, uh, and then it, so it takes these people and it takes them back to live in Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing to Jewish people who are from Jerusalem, who've been taken captive and by force are forced to live in the capital city. Now this is the capital city of the, capital, of the nation that destroyed their city, that, that captured them. And not only that, making matters worse, it is very unlike Jerusalem. Jerusalem, at least theoretically, not at this point, but theoretically, Jerusalem was supposed to be the center of God's reign. It was the place of the temple. It was to be a holy city where the people lived according to the law of God, where God was worshipped. Babylon, 
Babylon was the opposite of that. Babylon was highly pluralistic. They worshiped many, many idols. It was sexually immoral. It was, uh, uh, the, their beliefs of sorcery and magic clouded everything. It was in all of their art, all of their culture, uh, everything that was part of Babylon had the belief of sorcery and magic. And so such a city like that, you can imagine if you're a devout Jew and you're living in a place like that, how odious it was to you. It was just, a, it was an awful place for a Jew to live. And uh, while the city of Babylon uh, was later destroyed, the spirit of Babylon continues on because notice what God says here to the Jews. He says, here you are in Babylon and here's what I want you to do. I want you to make yourself at home. I want you to settle down. This is where you are called to live. And we find similar things because the spirit of Babylon continues on. Babylon was later destroyed just as, as the prophets would promise. It was never really inhabited in any sense, at least not like this, again, even as the prophets had promised. But Babylon goes on in the Bible to become a symbol of the city of man, that anti-God culture that is opposed to all that God is and all that God does and to his reign. And so we, we see this uh, throughout the Bible, but particularly in Revelation. In Revelation, we see the city of Babylon contrasted with the holy city of Jerusalem, or uh, the church of Jesus Christ in Revelation is portrayed as this beautiful, radiant bride of Christ, this glorious and spectacular people of God. And then on the other hand, we have this other woman, which is Babylon, Babylon the harlot, Babylon the harlot. And we see this most clearly in Revelation chapter 17. There we find Babylon is, is the harlot and she is wearing purple and scarlet. Uh, uh, the, the colors of royalty, purple, and seduction, scarlet. She's adorned with gold and silver and uh, jewels. She's, she's sparkling, she's glitzy, she's, she's gaudy, she's, she's glitzy and trashy all at the same time. Uh, she's like a party girl. She has a cup in her hand. So you, can, you know, get the picture. Glitzy, gaudy, a little bit trashy, with a cup in her hand, kind of stumbling along, and it says the cup that she is drinking is full of the abominations and fornications. She's sleazy, attractive, repulsive, but seductive. In a word, she's a Kardashian, right? <laughs> she is a, oh, you, you agree. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? You know, she has this beauty uh, in one sense, but she's so trashy, you go, I don't want to look, but, but men can't help but kind of get another glance, right? Something seductive, but you know it's wrong, you know it's evil, you know it's bad. And, uh, and so uh, we, we shouldn't be mistaken by her easy looks, though. She's quite powerful. Revelation goes on to say that all the kings of the earth fornicate with her. In other words, she's the place of power. And it's, it's not just the seductiveness of sexual immorality. The seductiveness of power is actually an incredibly powerful force, even for the people of God, where you'll want to cozy up to those who will give you a voice and, and, uh, and, a, and a sense of influence. Uh, but we shouldn't be mistaken by that. Uh, verse uh, 17, chapter 17, 2 of Revelation describes her sitting on many waters. And we're told later that those waters uh, represent her power over peoples and multitudes and nations. Babylon is with us today. She's in every country and every culture, even our own. She uses her seduction, not just the seduction that seduces the youth, 
for the seduction that seduces the older and the middle age as well, the seduction for power, for influence, and she will lure you into a trap. And so you can see then why the Jews living in old Babylon longed to get back to Jerusalem, saying, we don't want to be at home in this place. And later on, Jeremiah tells them some false prophets are going to come up and say, don't bother unpacking your suitcases. You're going to go home soon. And Jeremiah, God says through Jeremiah, don't listen to them. You're going to be here for a while. Settle down, have babies, plant gardens. Now, if you're going to be moving on, you don't plant. When you're going to staying at a hotel, you don't plant a garden, right? You're not going to be there to harvest. God says, you're going to be here to harvest. You're going to, you're going to be here to see your grandchildren. Stick around. It's going to be 70 years. And so, uh, and so you see why they want to, uh, want to leave, though. They want to just be passing through. And in many ways, we have the same sort of feeling. And what is disoriented is those days you get up and you think you should be in Jerusalem. You think this should be a holy place, a Christian place, a place where people do the right things. And it's so disorienting because we're not in Jerusalem, we're in Babylon. And if you think you're in Jerusalem, you're going to be angry all the time. And I think that is one of the reasons why many Christians and religious people are very angry at the world. They're expecting the world to be like Jerusalem. And God says, you're not in Jerusalem. You're not there. You are in Babylon, and you need to come to terms with the land in which you are. This is not a Christian world. God is Lord over all. The kingdom of God will prevail over the kingdom of man, but that's not how it is at this point. Babylon is still with us. And so uh, we have to then learn then to live as exiles. And that leads us to our second point. Know where you are, but then you've got to know who you are. And, And again, this is where oftentimes we get quite confused. While God commands the Jews to make their homes in Babylon, he does not command them to become Babylonians. And this is very important. Because sometimes when we seek to make ourselves at home, we adopt all the trimmings of the host culture instead of, uh, instead of uh, retaining our own uh, culture of citizens of heaven. Notice how God addresses them uh, in this passage and how he calls himself. He says twice in these verses, he calls himself the God of Israel. Now notice what's happened. Israel, the Jews, have been taken into exile. And they are probably thinking at this point that God has abandoned them. And they have good reason to think that. The reason they're in exile is because they have abandoned God. But God, as he speaks to these Jews in exile, he says, even though you have abandoned me, I am still your Lord. I am keeping my covenant. My covenant promise to you is I will be your God and you will be my people. And even as you're in Babylon, that does not change. You are not Babylonians. You're my people. And you have to remember your identity. And so they're in, in, to be in Babylon, but they're not to be of Babylon. We are to be in the world, but we are not of the world. And that is a, a distinction we must retain. We are a holy nation a distinct people. Now, this New Test- the New Testament picks up this theme of, of what it means to live as exiles in a foreign land. In fact, oftentimes in the New Testament, we are referred to as sojourners and strangers. In Hebrews 11, we're told about how Abraham was looking for another country. In uh, Peter, uh, we are often called exiles, at least twice in Peter. Peter, in his first letter, calls us exiles, and the word he uses for exiles is a word for resident alien. Now, resident alien, some of you are here are resident aliens. You're, you are here, your citizenship is in another country, but you live and you work here. 
Some of you have been resident aliens. You are citizens of America, but you've lived and worked in a foreign country. And as a resident alien, your, your, your homeland, your culture is all shaped by your homeland, your, your values. That's, that's who you are. And your primary allegiance is to your homeland. And the homeland shapes your beliefs and your practices. But as a resident alien, you live uh, fully as a full participant in the host culture. And so that's how we are. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? right, We're citizens of Jerusalem, but we live in Babylon. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, uh, 13 to 14, those who have faith in Jesus have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And as such, Paul then says in Philippians, we are now citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is, our true homeland is heaven. Uh, We are citizens of Jerusalem, but we live in Babylon. Or to borrow from uh, St. Augustine, uh, there are two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. And we're living in the city of man, but we're citizens of the city of of God. Now, living as a a resident alien, that can be quite confusing. uh, Because you're, you're living in the culture, and there's certain ways where you have to adapt to that new culture. Uh, you know, so if you're in a, in a different culture, you, you usually pick up the dress of that culture. You might eat the foods of that particular culture. Uh, you uh, would, would probably learn some social norms that are associated with that culture. But your values and your beliefs are still those of your host culture. You, you don't cease to be uh, that, that, uh, from the, the host culture where you're from. And so uh, it can cause some, uh, some confusion about your identity. Uh, one time I was talking to a, a missionary kid. And I asked him a question that you should never ask. In fact, I look back, how insensitive. He, the kid was, um, he was born in, his, his mom was American, his dad's from Costa Rica, he was born in Colombia, he spent his formative years in Chile, then he moved back to Costa Rica, and then he decided to go to the, the, state, the college in the States. So I said, uh, so what are you? Uh, <laughs> right, it's like me, Mr. Sensitivity, right? Um, you know, what, like, who, you know what, what nationality do you consider yourself? And he gave the most gracious response. He said, I don't know, I'm just a child of God. Isn't that great? There's a young man who knows who he is. He's got his identity centered. It's not based on any ethnicity or culture or place. I'm a child of God. And as a child of God, no matter where you live in the world, even if you're born here, you're still a resident alien here. We are living in exiles here uh, in in America. Now, uh, as we live as resident aliens and as we're exiles, we have to stay grounded. We cannot forget our identity. But as we live here, we have to remember that we're not here as tourists, but we're here on mission. And that leads us to the third point. Know why you're here. Know why you're here. Notice how God addresses them in verse 4. He calls them all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice how how they got to Babylon. God says, I have sent you there. Uh, You know the the Latin word, of course, for sent. Not that God uses the Latin word here in the Old Testament, but the Latin word is missio, right? I've, I've missioned you here. Now, no doubt, the, uh, Phil Riken observes that no doubt uh, when the captives talked about being in Babylon, they probably used words like abandoned, banished, condemned, but that's not how God saw things. God saw things as he had ex- exiled as a mission. He says, literally, he said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. 
Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. God had sent them. Even in exile, God's purpose for his people always remains the same. Do you remember how God begins his covenant? God starts with a covenant people back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Of all the peoples of the earth, he establishes a covenant relationship with a man named Abram, later changed to Abraham. And here's what God says to Abraham. He says, I will be your God and you and your descendants will be my people. And then he gives him a promise. And he says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You are to be a blessing to the nations. And, and some uh, grammarians notice this. He's not only giving a promise that you will be a blessing to the nations. It's actually a command. Be a blessing to the nations. God called Abraham with a mission. It was not that Abraham was simply to take care of his family separate from the rest of the world and to not care about the rest of the world. Abraham and the Jews were here on mission from God. They're missioned by God to the world. And now here the Jews are in exile, and God says, guess what, Jews? You're still on mission. You're still here, not for yourselves, but for the sake of the world. I have sent you there. You are there for a purpose, and therefore you're to be on mission while you're there. And with the coming of Jesus, God is bringing his covenant promises and his covenant mission into full view. Paul says that those who have the faith of Abraham and have faith in Jesus are the true descendants of Abraham, which means if you are in Christ, you have been incorporated into that covenant. You're part of the family of God. And so God now says to you, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as part of the heirs of that covenant that we've been grafted into, added into the family of God, we now share in that covenant mission. So think about this. How did you get to Colorado Springs? Your company did not bring you here. The military did not bring you here. The mountains are calling and I must go did not bring you here, right? God brought you here. You are here because God has sent you to our city and he's brought you here on mission for him. And so, so we're not just to live here in the city, we're to live here as, as missionaries. And so that then leads to very practical questions. How do we do that? How do we live on mission as exiles here in Colorado Springs? Well, again, God tells us. Seek the welfare of the city. This fourth point, seek the welfare. Uh, you know, earlier we noticed that we have to accept the fact that we live in Babylon, we're not in Jerusalem. But acceptance is not the same thing as passivity. And we accept the fact we're in Babylon, but that does not mean we're to be passive about this. So notice what God says in verse seven. But seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. And let me pause there. The word welfare is one that translators just have a hard time translating. It's, a, it's the Hebrew word that we've talked about many times. It's that Hebrew word shalom, often translated peace, but it doesn't simply mean tranquility. It means, it means flourishing, blessing. And so, so read it this way. But seek the flourishing, the blessing, the fullness of the city to which I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its flourishing, blessing, fullness, you will find your flourishing, blessing, and fullness. Shalom, uh, as one writer puts it, is a universal flourishing, wholeness, or delight. Or as, or as Cornelius Plantica said, shalom is the way things ought to be. It's the world made right. And so God here is commanding us, commands them, and now us, to seek the shalom of the city. 
we're to do all that we can do to bring the peace and prosperity to the city. That means being a good neighbor, maintaining the beauty of the community, caring for our parks and open spaces, feeding the poor. It means volunteering at school, working to shut down immoral and unethical businesses, working to cultivate a culture of life rather than a culture of death. And it means loving people who are very different from you. And of course, the main way we seek the shalom of the city and the welfare of it is by pointing its citizens to Christ. Because it's only in Jesus can we find true peace. It's only through Jesus Christ that one can find forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. As Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace. Same word I'm sure Jesus would have used in the original would have been shalom. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in seeking the peace and the welfare of our city, our mission must be to point people to Jesus Christ. So because we are resident aliens, citizens of another land, while living here, it is our mission to testify to the reality of our true homeland. As we live in Babylon, we bear witness to another country, to another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And by the way, this is interesting. As you go through the Gospels account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that the gospel is oftentimes, especially in the book of Matthew, not simply called the gospel. It's oftentimes called the gospel of the kingdom. Now remember, the word gospel means good news. So what's the good news? The good news is, yes, we're in Babylon, but there's a new kingdom coming. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the king. And with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. And so now we are citizens of, uh, of the kingdom of heaven, telling the citizens of the kingdom of Babylon that peace has come and that they can have peace with God. We are ambassadors of this new kingdom, as the apostle Paul says. And so we bear witness to it. And as the people of God, we don't bring in the kingdom. We don't usher in the kingdom, but we do point to the kingdom. We are witnesses to it. We, we testify to its reality. So how do we tell people in a way that they're going to understand that the kingdom of God is real? Well, we do two things. Number one, we tell them. We tell them the gospel. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them about how they too can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That is only through faith, believing in him, believing that he died and paid the penalty for your sin, putting your trust in him and following him that you too can become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and have peace with God. We have to proclaim that message. Some people say, you know, quoting uh, or probably misusing Francis of Assisi, you know, preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. It is always necessary to use words. Always necessary to use words. People will not understand what the kingdom of God is unless we tell them. At the same time, at the same time, we proclaim the gospel in deeds, by, by the things that we do, by our actions. And again, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, uh, he tells them in word, but then he does something else. He, he performs miracles. You know the word that the, the New Testament usually uses to describe miracles? It's not miracles. Usually they're called signs. What does a sign do? A sign signifies something. How's that for a brilliant definition, right? A sign points to something else. It signifies something. It shows another reality. What were the signs that Jesus did? Jesus healed the sick. He fed the poor. He turned water to wine. He he, he, uh, he, he restored nature, calming the sea. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Let me show you. Let me show you what the kingdom of God is like.
And so we see then in the book of Acts, as, they, as the apostles begin the ministry, what do they do? They proclaim the good news, and they do acts of mercy and justice, compassion as well. And so we, as we go about proclaiming the good news, we do it with words, but we also do it with our deeds, with our actions. That's why yesterday morning we spent uh, time serving the city. And that was so fun seeing the pictures of, of people all around the city doing beautiful things. And that's what we do as ambassadors. We say, we want you to know what the kingdom of God is like. And in the kingdom of God, there are no weeds in your garden. In the kingdom of God, children who others say are unwanted are wanted. In the kingdom of God, there's healing for the sick. In the kingdom of God, there's, there's, there's no more poverty. In the kingdom of God, uh, there's true love for, for our neighbor. And we show them that. We tell them, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And they're saying, I don't understand this. You say, okay, let me show you. Let me show you its reality. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus and the apostles. And we, we, uh, we continue to proclaim that peace. And we do so uh, oftentimes in our partnerships. It's not like we do this once a year. That's why uh, in our community time, we invite you to our city celebration to learn about how we're partnering with others in the city, with, with Springs Rescue Mission, with Mercy's Gate, with Life Network, with, with others, uh, to, to bring life to our city, because that's our calling. We are resident aliens on mission here in Colorado Springs. But there's one more thing we must do, and that is pray. Pray for the welfare of the city. Notice that that is a command that God gives to them. And I would say it certainly applies to us as well. Jeremiah says, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. Can you imagine what it was like for the Jews living in exile to hear this? Here's, you're living here in Babylon. These people are the people who destroyed your homeland. They took you captive. They brought you here. They're immoral. They're evil. They worship false gods. I mean, yeah, I want to pray for them. I, I've got a prayer, right? God says, uh-uh, that's not where you're to pray. You're to pray for their peace and their welfare. And you're thinking, I'm not going to pray for the peace and the welfare of these people. They don't deserve it. They're evil people. And God says, and that's my whole point. We don't deserve it either, do we? That's the whole beauty of the gospel. Is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us, while we were citizens of the domain of darkness, Jesus transferred us to the kingdom of light. We didn't transfer us, Jesus transferred us. We didn't make, do this on our own, God rescued us. And because God is a rescuing God, we who are his people are joining him in his rescue mission. And we do that through prayer, by praying for people. Our city needs our prayers. Now, what if... Um, what if we followed the, the, the pattern we see in Jeremiah 29 and we prayed for our city? Do you think Colorado Springs would be a different place? Do you think if we seriously prayed for our city, that if they made a movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it would actually make a difference? I'm a firm believer, by the way, in, in habit. I think everybody here wants a beautiful city. I think everybody here wants to see the welfare of the city flourish. I don't think we're all gonna do it, though, 
unless we figure out a way to make it a habit. You know, every day you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth. It's a habit, and it's a very good one. Thank you. Uh, Every day you get up and you take a shower. It's a habit, and it's a very good one. Thank you for that habit. Uh, Habits are very good things. And prayer can be a wonderful habit. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to, to, to begin praying for our city and to join me in praying for our city. Because here's one of the things we found out about habits. Habits, for you to do a habit, usually have to have some sort of cue that's going to remind you to do the habit. And then the other thing we know about habits uh, is, so you get up, you have fuzzy things in your teeth. That's a reminder. Brush your teeth, right? Uh, that's a habit. Uh, the other th- thing about habits, it usually takes 21 days to form a new habit. I don't know why 21. That's just what they tell me, 21 days. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out your phone, and I left my phone on my office desk. So you pull out your phone, and, uh, and take out your phone. Uh, hold up your phone. This isn't, I'm serious. Hold up your phone, Okay. Okay, good. I feel like I'm at a concert. You know, right? Wave them. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, on your phone, uh, here's what I want you to text. Text to this number. Here's the phone number you're going to text to. It's only six digits. 555-888. That's all you're texting to. Is that on the screen? I thought we were going to have it on the screen. 555-888. So you're going to text 555-888, and here's what your text should say. All one word, prayer two one. P-R-A-Y-E-R, the number two, the number one. Then hit send. When you do that, you're now signed up for the next 21 days. You're going to get a text with a Bible verse and something about which to pray for our city. And so we want you to join in praying for that. Now, if you forgot that, if I went too fast, we have handouts in the back. Uh, Ask your neighbor. We want you to join in this. But will you commit to the next 21 days to praying for our city? Seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you're a God who brings about shalom We thank you that those of us who were once citizens of the domain of darkness, you by your grace have transferred us to the kingdom of your son. And Lord, we want that blessing for everyone we meet. We want to see our city filled with those who've been rescued out of darkness and have come into light. We want to to see our city thrive and flourish. We want to see uh, the signs of the kingdom here in Colorado Springs. So Lord, we pray, use us as your people, as your missionaries, as those whom you have sent to bless the city for your honor, for your glory. Amen.